Negro, nigga, black, doggy, colored, African booty scratcher, blackie, nigger, burnt face, to now we much more, and we will endure, so hear all the roars, brighter than the sun, the moon, the stars, we'll reclaim who we are, healing all the scars, traveling from Mars, we know who we are, and it is much more, negro, nigga, black, Darky, colored, African booty scratcher, blackie, nigger, burnt face to now we much more, and we will always endure. So here are the wars, brighter than the sun, the moon, the stars. We'll proclaim who we are, healing all the scars, traveling from Mars. We know who we are, and it is much more. It's an X. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the More Podcast once again. I'm so glad that you guys are continuously tuning in. Today, we have a special guest who is the CEO of Civics, and his name is Akuma. Welcome, Akuma. Yeah, thank you very much, Nkosia. It's a real great pleasure to finally be on your podcast. How are you doing? I'm grand. I'm grand. Thank you. Akuma actually has his own podcast as well. So this should make for a very interesting conversation, right? Yeah. 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 You should check out the Picky podcast and I'm definitely going to have you really soon as a guest on my podcast. I hope you'd be coming willingly or would I have to drag you along? <laughs> I would definitely come willingly. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. So tell my audience a little bit about who you are, where you're based, and the work that you do. All right. So my name is Michael Okuma Chijioke, and I'm a Nigerian uh, researcher and teacher. Yeah, I like to think of myself as a teacher because that's probably my, my first love, you know, and mm-hmm. a job I would do for free if, if I had all the money I would need for the rest of my life. So until then, uh, we just keep working for money and then we're going to be a bit of a passion here and there. So I love to teach and I've been opportunity to teach in and out of the traditional classroom. And every time I would choose a non-traditional teaching because uh, rather than use a structured curriculum where we're trying to uh, put across to this young person's stuff that have been determined by persons who don't know them personally, we... Uh, working with young persons to find out exactly what they want to learn about, what they want to do with their lives, and very simple skills that they can make uh, use of with the resources in their own environment. So we're able to uh, ha- help young persons start podcasts or YouTube channels, create video content or write, or sometimes just find the courage to uh, publish their writings or share the pictures they have taken and they eventually become successful photographers or, or whatever it is that appeals to them, you know, because there are uh, certain gifts and abilities, I believe, that every young person has. And sometimes they just need the right person to help them look inwards and find what it is they can do, uh, you know, using what they already have and that they can monetize in some way to make a living for themselves. So I am one of those persons who like think out of the box. And while I think the 
university systems are doing, you know, they're doing okay. But in the African space, university education is almost totally useless, mm. you know. And then I also volunteer with this international organization called 100. And 100 is, is an international organization that promotes educational innovations. And one of the things I found really interesting about the work of 100 is that they understand these uh, beliefs that I have that the traditional educational system is oftentimes not effective and not able to lift people out of uh, maybe poverty, lift them out of the circumstances that exist in their communities. And so they are constantly trying to find innovations that have worked in different communities and finding ways to scale them and make them available to other similar uh, communities where they might want to adapt or adopt this innovation. So I kind of really fell in love with your work and I was like, okay, yeah, that's really cool. You know, sometimes it's the little things that uh, make a difference and and having access to this information can be uh, the dividing, uh, you know, could be the reason why someone succeeds or fails in life totally. So I'm really kind of passionate about all of these things because uh, Africa is a very different place to be when you compare to other parts of the world. You know, the the way we're governed is different. The way our laws are made is different. The way our cultures are, are different. And then our people you know, are different and unique in our own way. And unless we begin to create learning systems that embody local contexts, it would be very difficult for us to make any real progress as a people, as a continent. So uh, I'm, I'm big, you know, I'm a big advocate for local contexts in teaching that don't necessarily have to embrace the whole traditional model kind of thing. Mm. And that kind of summarizes what I try to do at Cervics and what I try to bring into uh, every other stuff that I do, whether I'm creating video content, audio content, I'm writing, I'm trying to help other young Africans to open their eyes to the realities around them and to understand that the, that the help we need and all the resources we need to become the best and the greatest Africa we could ever be already lies within us. Mm. And I well, I think that's basically a bunch of what I believe in and what I work for in nutshell. I love that. Wow. Thank you for sharing. So explain to us a little bit about how is this the traditional school setting like educational environment like in Nigeria? Um, who is it influenced by and you know how how does it help structure the young people or not? Well, uh, you see, it's it's a real uh, disheartening situation we have in Nigeria and I bet across uh, many African countries because when the Europeans came to Africa, they they did business with our people. You know, we were trading partners for 400 years and, and that's the truth. For 400 years, Europe did not try to colonize Africa. They we're trading in natural resources. 
they wanted people that they would take back to their country. But at the time, they were like, you know what? I think we have to, I think we have to, uh, you know, subjugate these people and take everything. And so when they came and settled with our people, they were welcomed and, and then they sold these educational systems to our people and they said, um, would like you to learn how to speak a language, would like to teach you how to read and write, would like to teach you our ways. And, you know, traditional Africans uh, in the ancient times were lovers of knowledge. And I haven't seen any evidence to the contrary. You know, our people have always been lovers of knowledge. And they said, okay, you know what? Yeah, that's great. You want to teach us, we want to learn. So they send their kids out to learn. But the, but what the, what the Europeans did was not to teach our people how to innovate. They didn't teach them how to be creative. They taught them enough so that they could, you know, take dictations, uh, so they could read instructions that were given to them. Mm. And that was the, you know, those were the confines of the educational system that we received. So up till now, it's still common to hear people say, I'm going to school to learn how to read and write, because that was the basic definition of an educated person, as uh, Europe gave to Nigerians at the time. They said, okay, go to school, learn how to read and write. And then in schools, what they did mostly were repetitions, A is for apple, B is for ball, C's for cats, and the students repeat that, you know, a hundred times a day for three months. And then in time, for example, they'll be asked, A is for, and they'll say, Apple, 100%, you're brilliant. And that was the system of education we had. And that was the system of education I passed through, you know. In, in primary school, I still remember, uh, uh, reading comprehensions, and then the teacher would read a sentence and would repeat after them. So, you know, these days our people are beginning to improve on the educational system where kids now learn phonics and they understand why a word sounds the way it sounds. And then they can tell the sound of A or B or C. They can tell uh, what sounds should be like when uh, different letters are combined. But back in my days, we didn't learn phonics. We just repeated what the teacher said. Um, Adam is a man. And then we just memorized the words. Uh, we learned how to, how to write them and how to spell them. And this was the stem of education our people inherited and had for nearly a hundred years so that they would just learn enough to be able to read, uh, from structured documents and be able to write down dictations, write letters. And, and then read the Bible, of course, because it was really important to our people that they learned how to, to read the Bible, because that would be, you know, the other side to our education. Because at the time, our people would prioritize religious education to learning about technology and to science, because religion had greater promises of, you know, of a kingdom that's would take away all your problems, all your sorrows, and give you everything that you needed. So that educational system we had, that's a garbage-in, garbage-out system of education. 
what I like to call these days the parrot system of education. You know, you get you get a parrot to teach them to repeat certain phrases, and they repeat it a million times. That became our song. That became the norm. And we had lecturers who were raised in these systems who became professors, and they produced more professors who produced more professors. So when you have half-baked instructors that will create half-baked students, would eventually become instructors and create students that that would be worse than them. So with each passing generation of education, educators, the educational system got worse, you see. And over time, we here we are still learning the same things our grandparents were taught in nursery, primary, secondary schools, and in the universities. You know, this is a personal experience I had uh, in my university days. It was... I think this was probably 2007 and we had this lecturer who taught us medical parasitology and he would come into class and you know he was like a superhero kind of lecturer and he would read off his notes from the top of his head and he was all about microorganisms and just coming oh gadia lambia you know, he was just full of these microbes and he would be naming all of them from the top of his head. And this was 2007. And I got this uh, medical microbiology textbook off the internet. And I was trying to read up some of the topics he, he'd been teaching us. This book was published in 2003. And as of 2003, a lot of these organisms had new names. The names had changed. They were no longer known in the world of science by these names this man was dictating to us in class. Yeah. Well, that, that kind of shows how, you know, the, the system isn't improving. The lecturers are lazy. They repeat stuff from, uh, from the notes they were given. And so when people study in these systems, they are unable to solve any real life problems. They are unable to contribute meaningfully to the growth and development of their own communities. And that is uh, super, super disheartening. And you see, as bad as it is, even when our people go to other countries to go study, so you have Nigerians who go to the US, go to the UK, go to Germany, they get a master's degree, get a, a doctorate degree, then they return to Nigeria and they realize that the new knowledge they've acquired don't fit into the old system. And then they, they either have to go back to to Europe to go and work or they can return to to still teach at a level that is obsolete and it's unable to contribute to community development at any level whatsoever. So it's it's really crazy, you know, it's like uh it's like someone who's gone to study in Hong Kong or study uh, in the US and then they become a professor there, they return they return to Nigeria. Now, in the U.S., they are used to having access to research grants, having access to research infrastructure, having support of your institution, and uh, having whatever support is you need to make your discoveries or improve on whatever it is you want to teach and all that. You come back here, no research funding, no infrastructure. The, the professor barely has an office of their own. They are unable to function and they are unable to give anything meaningful to uh, these young persons that depend on them to acquire even knowledge for the future. So 
the traditional educational system as we have it in Nigeria is something that belongs in a museum. And yeah, and strangely enough, a lot of schools, a lot of government schools and a lot of private schools still do that parallel system of learning where people learn to read by repeating and by memorizing words as it's against learning uh, phonics or learning how words work. You know, so we're, we're stuck in the past, you know, we're probably 300 years behind uh, other countries as far as education is concerned. That aspect of of our life has not evolved, has not developed, and I hope that really changes soon. Yeah, that's re really interesting how you describe the education system in um, Nigeria, because although I hear what you're saying as far as it being far behind, um, the American education system still functions on route memorization and like repetition, right? And it's it even became a, um, a case in the Department of Education in the United States that they're going to like omit certain information from um, the curriculum. So for example, they didn't want to talk about race critical um, theory or they didn't want to discuss real history as to what happened as to how you have some portions of Africans that are in the Americas. Um, so it's, it's very limiting in its capacity. And, and that, that's, did you know that's not something that is unique to America? Because in Nigeria, for a long time, students were not allowed to study history. Wow. I didn't know yes, that. And, yeah, and even though uh, I think there's there's been uh, some changes to the curriculum to fix that, but students still don't study history wow. at any level. So the only time you can study history is if you go to the university. And then you're not studying like proper Nigerian history. You're studying a British history or American history. And then a bit of African history. You know, you're looking at the Kanembaran Empire, the Songhai Empire, the Sokoto Caliphate. And, you know, these are, these don't do justice to the people. Cause then we're not looking at how the invasion happened. We're not looking at how colonization happened. We never learn about the slave trade. You know, for some of us, it was, it was the movie, The Roots, Kunta Kinte. That's how we learned about the slave trade. <laughs> wow. Really? The Roots? Yes. Yeah, the roots. That's how a lot of us learned about That's not it, the right? best representation of it. Yeah, of course. So no one, no one is going to teach. So our people here are as ignorant as, as uh, Africans everywhere in the world. Because mm -hmm. the same person who crafted the curriculum in the US and in the UK and across Europe are the same persons who are responsible for the curriculum we have here. So if, if we don't have history, uh, we've not had that for a real long time. And uh, people, our people have tried, you know, they've fought, but that's a fight that does not look like we're going to win it anytime soon. Because no, again, even, that. even when, well, yes, okay, maybe I'll take that back. But it's, it's a really hopeless situation. We could win, you know, sometime in the future. We could get history back in the schools, but then it's not so much about history as a concept, but history as you know, as the content, mm. you know, yeah, 
it's not enough to say, okay, we're learning history. Yeah, the Canaan Empire was founded in no. We want to know what happened to the empire. Why did the empire fall? What did the Europeans do to the empire that destroyed it? How did the Sogoto Caliphate become uh, this this puppet show that it is? Because then the, the Sultan of Sokoto once upon a time used to be the most the most powerful man in all of northern Nigeria, and his words were commands to his people. His words were law. But today, the the Sultan can be removed by a politician. Mm. A, gov- a governor can unseat a Sultan, and nothing happens. Because then, you know, the power is gone. He's not as influential as he used to be, and, and that's horrible. So, the history... The, the history as we studied is is not good enough. A lot of us have to self educate, and uh, when we learn enough, we try to educate other other Africans. That hey, that does an uphill task because again, our people have had a lot of crazy things uh, put in their heads from all these very different. Uh, from all these very different angles. And, you know, I've met Africans who say to me, ah, do you know that we are the Jews of the Bible? I'm like, what? They said, yeah, we are the real Jews. I said, oh my God, who, who told you that? You know, well, okay, so maybe, maybe the Jews were connected to Africa once upon a time. But yes. There are Jews but- that are African that live in certain places in Africa. Like, I think one portion yes. is South America. Some of them yes. are in Ethiopia. Yeah. And some of them have even gone back to Israel. So there is a community, but it's like um, very, it's been dwindled down a lot. But Yeah, yeah, of course, you know, just like, uh, just like over a thousand tribes in Africa, there will always be interactions and influences. So, uh, tribes would interact with their neighbors and they, they would influence one another. So, yes, were we close to the Jews? Yes. Were they, uh, interactions and influences? Yes. But we, we can't say all Africans were Jews and then we have to go to heaven and Abraham is our father and then do some, you know, study some history. And that's the beauty of archaeology because then uh, we can debunk a bunch of all of these things. You know, Jewish history goes back maybe 6,000 years. We have civilizations in Africa that uh, predate that. So, uh, are there relationships? Yes. But then, are we going to confine all of our tradition and history uh, based on documentations from one single tribe or from one single community? No, I think that's totally wrong because that takes away the diversity and individuality that uh, different uh cultural sects and tribes in Africa have and should preserve, you know, but uh, anyways, I think we have a lot of educating to do and we have to do a lot more research because once upon a time, a lot of the literature we had on Africa were not uh, created by Africans and in the in the popular words of Cheno Achebe, until the lion learns to write, the tale of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. And that is uh, one saying that has been, you know, the bedrock of my content creation activities. Because as Africans, we need to create more content. We need to write more books. We need to tell more stories. Mm-hmm. We need to create more systems that 
will you know feed and empower the future generations of Africa rather than uh, over reliance on irrelevant literature that have come from people who have uh, ulterior motives and whose intentions were not to properly represent Africans or you know to put us in the right perspective at all you know so I have a problem with that and I don't know hopefully in this lifetime we're going to see a lot of that change yeah definitely thank you woof that was that was very powerful I definitely agree with uh, a lot almost everything that you're saying so I'm curious as to what would what do you think the ideal learning system looks like for African people because I've envisioned creating a system an international system for Africans to be able to um, interact with other Africans from different parts of the world and be able to have this interconnected relationship with each other and, and um, uh, a cultural exchange, if you will, within the African diaspora. So we're not so divided. So we're not so filled with animosity or, or um, these differences, right? These differences can exist, but there can be diversity and there can be unity that's created with it. So I've always envisioned an education system where we're able to learn um, through traveling and, and through building communities together, like building a home from scratch, building farms from scratch, building renewable energy sources all from scratch. So we're not only um, learning about the phonetic structure of the English alphabet, but we're actually learning how to build our own communities from scratch. And then, um, yeah, and, and it, then later on, it would be how to protect those communities, right? Because there's it's one thing that we've created our own communities historically, but I think that an issue that we found historically with African people is how do we, especially in, in the 21st century, how do we protect the communities that we're creating. So that becomes a, another um, another ordeal in the African community. But what do you think the ideal learning system for Africans would look like? Okay, so uh, what I think is uh, for us to understand what system of education would work best for us, we have to look at how our people studied at our most prosperous times. Now, before colonization, like we've had uh, various civilizations across Africa that existed for thousands of years before the Europeans would, would eventually visit us and, and try to stick around and try to destroy all of this. And one thing I've come to learn from, from Egypt, from Ethiopia, from Nigeria is that Africans learned a lot by doing, you know, where I come from in Nigeria, I'm an, an Igbo man. That's my tribe, where Igbos. Now, the Igbo people are popular for the apprenticeship system of learning, you know? And then uh, there there are usually two main parties. You have the boss, you know, who's the master, the one who hands down the knowledge, and it's called the yoga. And then you have the boy, who's the apprentice. Now... This takes between five and seven years. And these young persons work with an expert 
they work under him or her and they get to observe the work that they do. They get to learn, you know, hard skills. And with time, as they grow, he gives them more and more responsibilities. And over time, they get to this level where they have mastered the trade. So what the man does is he sets them up. So within the period that they are in training, the five, seven years, you know, they have to leave their parents and go stay with this, stay in this man's home. And they're all living together and working together for like five years or seven years. You know, it's different for different persons. So when he feels this, this dude has mastered the trade, he gives him, uh, gives him all the resources he needs to start up. So let's say uh, someone is learning to be a mechanic and and then he's completed his training. Then the boss has to pay, get him his own store, or get him all the equipment he needs, and then, you know, wishes him well, and he can go off and start his own uh, mechanic store, and then he can get his own apprentices. And that way, our community was able to, you know, keep empowering and edu educating young persons, and everybody had a skill, you know, there were there was no room for theoretical learning where people go memorize stuff and they have their brains full of uh, knowledge without uh, any physical ability any uh, abilities to convert all that to products or to use those theories to positively influence society in any way. Yeah. Everybody could do some stuff and. You just had to find where your strengths lay and you'd find the right person with whom you'd want to attach yourself. And that kind of really worked well. And sometimes you had young persons leave their communities and travel to, uh, you know, uh, distant communities to go learn a skill. And it worked all the time. And right now it's been estimated. Now we have this, we have a famous city called Newi. Newi has the most millionaires per square meter than any other place in the world. I'll, I'll say that again. Newi is a town in Anambra State in Nigeria, and it has more millionaires per square meter oh. or square mile or square kilometer or square anything, you know, per unit of land than you'd find anywhere in the world. And the secret behind the prosperity of this town is this uh, local apprenticeship system where you have millionaires churning out other millionaires every year. And this is a system that has been sustained for hundreds of years. And But then this, this system of learning is only peculiar among the Igbo people in Nigeria. So the other tribes, the other major tribes are like, ah, these Igbo people, they don't show us how they make so much money and how they're able to succeed. And then, if you know a bit about uh, our history, you know, the Igbo people went to war against Nigerian government between 1967 and 1970 and broke away and created the, the Republic of Biafra. But then, after 1970, the Biafra was reabsorbed into Nigeria, and we still have agitations here and there. But uh, so far, the breakaway hasn't happened anymore. But ever since... Ever since the war ended, the Igbo people who lost the war, of course, and we had all of our major cities destroyed and shelled and a lot of our prominent people killed, have, you know, somehow bounced back. And we have 
you know, a lot more prosperous people. We've built uh, more prosperous cities than some of these other regions that did not see war. And what would the secret be? Our apprenticeship system. Because, again, the Western education as we have it has not necessarily helped our people so well. So I think that whatever is going to work for Africa has to be practice-based. You know, and then, you know, we must uh, look at our local context, see the problems that exist in our communities, and then find the right skill sets that will enable us to overcome uh, these problems, create value, and make money. You know, that's the way our people did it in the past, and that's the way a lot of our people are still doing it and making a lot of money. And funny enough, that is what a lot of us are going back to, even after we have studied in in universities we all still come back to go acquire these skills and you know, go back out in the streets work and create value and make money though so you come to enugu or anambra in nigeria you're gonna find a lot of graduates who have never had to use the the certificate the degrees they've they've received because they are practicing other skills that are making them a lot more money than uh, than the Western education they've received will, will ever make them, you know. So I think, you know, probably we'll have to do a little bit of blending and, uh, clean up the system, but any knowledge we acquire that does not in, in any way improve the society is useless. And here's a practical example. I have, uh, two university degrees. I have a first degree in anatomy, human anatomy. And in Nigeria, that's a hopeless degree. You can't do anything with that degree except if you want to teach. And then you'd end up just teaching anatomy. So it's more of garbage in, garbage out. You know, why, why would I spend four years studying a course that I can't, I can't practice? And then I eventually got a master's degree in public health education and nearly got, and nearly got a, a doctorate degree before I, decided to drop out of the university and stop wasting my time and resources uh, acquiring degrees that will not in any way empower me. So if we're going to find educational systems that would work for Africa, uh, we'll have to look at the problems we have here. We have to look at something that's, uh, that's been practice-based and that would enable people to start making money as quickly as possible, especially if the money isn't coming from the government because Western education prepares us to go work for the government and for private uh, private companies that still bend to a lot of government policies and regulations. And what that does is it keeps majority of the people poor. Most Africans who work for the government, you know, except of course for politicians who steal government funds, all those who do you know clean government work and earn a living, most of them are going to be poor and might probably be living just above the poverty line. You know, so Nigeria, for example, we don't have middle class, no middle class. So we have upper class and we have lower class and really poor people. And that's crazy, you know. A society without a middle class, that's, that's hell on earth. And that kind of describes what we are living in, you know, right now especially with this uh, crazy system that we have. So I think we need to revert to what it used to be. And uh, hopefully, hopefully we can restore the middle class and 
have most of our people prosperous as they used to be before all that was taken away. Right. Wow. And you speak of this um, almost, I guess I want to word it as like a subconscious resistance that we're kind of reverting to. Um, yeah. Can you, can you speak more about that? Like, what have you seen that reminds you of um, the resistance of white supremacy or this globalization that we see taking root? Yeah. So, you know, um, the world is becoming more and more globalized and uh, every culture is influencing every culture. But over time, we've come to learn a lot you know, as a people, as Nigerians, as Africans, and that is to find value in what we, you know, what, what is ours. You know, uh, just last week, the Nigerian musician Davido uh, performed in the UK, you know, and then shut down the O2 Arena. Everybody was like talking about it, it was trending, it was everywhere on social media and all that. And Davido wasn't going out there to sing pop or to sing uh, I don't know, it wasn't playing jazz or anything that the West would appreciate. It was giving hardcore Afrobeat. It was giving, you know, Nigerian music the way we love it and enjoy it here. Not in clean, sparkling British English. No, he was singing in Pidgin English, in Yoruba language. And the world loving for that. You know, and th this is a trend you're going to see more and more often because Nigerians are beginning to learn that the only way out of uh, the mess we found ourselves in is when we rediscover ourselves and begin to, you know, believe in what is genuinely ours and promote it. So, in so many ways, our people are beginning to resist a lot of the Western influences that we've had to leave on the front for more than a hundred years. And you, you can see that, you know, in the way we dress, if, if you looked at the earliest, uh, Niger, um, maybe the earliest, uh, African leaders, probably the first set of African presidents, they were all in suit and tie. But these days, it's difficult to come across African leaders who want to wear suit and ties. Everybody wants to go in their cultural attire. People want to speak more in their native languages. I was just reading on the news earlier today that the African Union has adopted Swahili as their first and of their first official language, mm. you know, but before now it wasn't, they had to go to the EU and everybody had to speak in English or French. But, you know, for the first time we're seeing Swahili become, uh, become the official language of the EU, you know, which we've seen coming because some African leaders have been pushing for this change. We saw the, uh, the East African, uh, the East African and the, and the South African countries come together to adopt Swahili as their official language in their meetings and in their correspondences. And now we're seeing that happen at AU. And what that might mean is that across Africa, we might have a policies that would make Swahili a compulsory subject in schools as that's against having English as a compulsory subject. You know, because then if up until now, all Africans, all African leaders go to the UN to speak in English as of again speaking Swahili. When, uh, we have, uh, we have Russians speak in, in Russian. We have the French speaking French. We have the Spanish speaking Spanish. 
and all Africans go to speak in English or French or Portuguese, you know, it doesn't reflect, it reflects poorly on all sorts of people. And so at, at regional, at continental level and at individual levels, we're seeing people, you know, flip on some of these uh, beliefs that our people have held on to for a hundred years, trying to become uh, West. Because I think that was kind of like uh, the intention to have us uh, become Westernized, to become Europeans. And for a very long time, and I think I did say this in a video too, that a lot of us, a lot of Africans are more European. In fact, we don't even realize we're Africans anymore. On the inside, we feel European. Because mm. then we, we, we've learned to eat the right way, to speak the right way, to, to behave the right way. We've learned the right knowledge. And then, you know, maybe you travel a bit and then you return to Africa. You feel okay. Yeah. I think, I think I'm all European now, but in time. And I think travel is one thing that does this for people. Cause before I left the shores of Africa, I was probably one of those who felt European on the inside. I wanted to do things right way. But then uh, once I left the continent and I had a chance to see, uh, you know, a very diverse group of people from different parts of the world. And I watched how they all behaved. I listened to the way they spoke. I interacted with them. And then I concluded that I was better off being an African and nothing more, you know, unapologetically African. And that's what I've tried to become. You know, so uh, a lot of times I would deliberately does want to sound African, you know, because when, when you watch Hollywood movies, Africans are expected to sound in a certain way uh, so that uh, we can uh, talk about uh, the things that we want to do because that is how the West expects us to sound. <laughs> but, yeah, <laughs> every every time I watch uh, Hollywood movies and they start to do that, uh, that thing, I, I don't even know what to call that. <laughs> the, the people... Counting on me, I'm like, oh my god, the talks that way. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it's good for the movies, you know. It's entertaining, so we watch it and we enjoy it too. And then we try to learn how to speak that way, so that anytime we travel out, we will try to replicate what they want to hear, you know. But it's it's crazy. Uh, people are beginning to realize that okay, well, we don't care anymore. I don't have to speak with a British accent. I don't have to try to sound American. Uh, I don't have to try to sound anything. I'll just be me, and then I'll just do, I'll just do my thing. I'll eat my native foods. I will defend the culture of our people. And it's very common now to see a lot of Africans turn their backs on, on the uh, uh, religions that have been propounded and given to us by the West. You know, a lot of our people are turning their backs on, on Christianity and going back to African traditional religion, which is. Uh, you know, very similar to the Christian religion because against the lies of the West that uh, traditional religions were satanic and they were evil, it's more or less the same thing, you know, the same beliefs, you know, we believed in one God, same way Christians believe in one God, we believe in angels, same way they believe in angels, but they kind of like just told the ancestors, ah, all these angels, all these spirits, all these things are gods. You believe you are worshiping different gods. And God said you should worship only him. And then they come and they say, okay, there's only one God, but then he has a son. His name is Jesus. And then there's Holy Spirit. And now there are three, but the three of them are one. 
and then they have angels and they have no those are many spirits it's no longer one god there are many spirits too so we can also call all of them gods and condemn christianity you know and they say you know we don't we don't offer sacrifices jesus has died once and for all no more sacrifice no more sacrifice but you have to pay your tithe you have to sow the seed you have to do the offering no it's the same thing you're still offering sacrifice because god does not eat money god does not have bank accounts you know so right. <laughs> yeah it's more it's more of the same thing actually it's more of the same thing because then in the traditional system you know uh you you offer a sacrifice you know you offer colonauts you pour libation for a drink or you offer an animal but then in the church you you monetize it you give them cash and then they are fine then the lord is happy with you and then they'll prophesy blessings mm-hmm. upon you you know so the more we study these systems the more people realize that okay we've been fooled for too long right. and people are beginning to abandon uh, some of these belief systems and even now we have across africa groups that are advocating for a change in the system of government because democracy does not seem to have favored africans at all you know a lot of african nations were more prosperous under systems of government that were not exactly uh, democratic or modeled after uh, what you have in the united kingdom or in the us but kind of what i think is uh, we'll have to keep experimenting until we find what works for us and what's going to bring uh, the best out of us as a people as it's against embracing all these uh, uh, ideas that come from globalization that says you have to praise this way or speak this way or act this way or have this kind of leader so that you can be accepted by the rest of the world as a civilized people, you know? Right. And uh, the, the, the poor use of the word civilization is kind of what gets a lot of our people confused because it makes it seem as if you have to be European to be considered civilized. And, you know, as it's against looking at the world civilization as, as a system that works for our people and helps them to, to keep developing and evolving and solving their own problems. But uh, that's not the way they want us to see it. They want us to become photocopies of what they have across Europe. And I think that's been the worst thing that's happened to us. And a lot of our people are realizing that and we're reverting to what we should be. But then it's it's a process that is going to continue maybe for the next uh, hundred years or more. And it would be exciting to see what would become in the future. Absolutely. And something interesting you were talking about is actually um, the etymology of, of God, which just means the true meaning of it, actually means to pour libation. It's actually like yeah. really, really interesting. So, um, yeah. Definitely would love to see a transition of us get more into our African roots. And then actually for the Africans that were indigenous to America or brought to the Americas, you're starting to see a huge shift and um, Africans in the Americas starting to uh, 
be more grounded in their Africanness or trying to find their Africanness. You have uh, this silly gesture of, and I do call it silly. I apologize for people who actually like getting <laughs> DNA tests. However, I don't yeah. think that it's possible to understand like where you come from from a DNA test only because there was migrations that happened historically, right? So it's just a huge mixture. Yeah. I, I don't think that it makes sense for a DNA test to be it, whatever the case, we're African, right? And that's what yeah. we should just... Uh, I, and you see, I, I totally agree with you. And this is a bit of, you know, my history and the history of my people, you know? Uh, the community where I come from, my ancestors were not always from that land. They came from elsewhere. And in fact, there's a documented history of migrations. So they've moved from place to place. But the way it's worked across Africa is every time a community grew, you know, some section of the community would leave and they would go find the new lands that were uninhabited and they would begin a new community. But then they would, of course, come with the traditions of their original homeland. And then they would have a kind of communion with uh, the original homeland. And once in a while, they would go back home to celebrate a festival or share with the people, tell stories, you know, so that they don't forget that there's a relationship, you know. And this has happened, you know, for hundreds and thousands of years. So there are communities you come to, you know, for example, uh, there's a community called Onisha in, in Iboland, in Nigeria. Now, the Anisha people were part of the ancient Bini kingdom. That's where they come from. But then, at some point, they decided to migrate. And they left the Bini kingdom. Today, they are Igbo people. They are considered Igbos. Because they now live in Igbo land. They practice the Igbo culture and tradition. But their origins are from, from the Bini culture. So you see the blend of Bini and, and Igbo culture. And then when the Binis hold their major festivals, you see the Onika people go to participate. And then when the Onika people hold uh, certain uh, cultures, you see the Bini people come to participate. Because then they understand that we are one, we're related. Even though for some reasons we've had to part ways, so migration was never really a problem for our people and starting new communities was also never really a problem for our people. And so, you know, uh, when I look at the YouTube communities and I see lots of people say, I'll go back to Africa or come back home or, you know, a lot, people say a lot and I'm like, okay, yeah, that's cool. If you want to come experience the continent, come. But if you want to come and stay, it's possible you won't like it here. It's possible you won't survive here because you, you've been raised in, in a different community. You've had a different life, you know, for, for most of your, for most of your life. And now you want to change all that. It's not going to be an easy transition. So when I see, uh, Africans from, from America who come to Africa and then after a year or two, they are running back to the US. I'm like, well, uh, you should have just listened to me. Okay. But you see, the thing is, our ancestors did not have a problem with starting new communities. And that's something I wish would happen, happen some more. You know, we can create communities wherever we are and then respect our roots. 
So we know we have ancestors in Africa. That's fine. It would be good to reconnect. It would be good to try to learn a little more about the culture and all that. But I'm one of those who don't believe every every African should come back to the continent. No, we're made to dominate it. And you don't dominate if you don't leave. So it's okay for us to go out there. It's okay for us to create new communities. But then it would also be okay for us to try to understand what the culture of our ancestors were. Because you see, there's a spiritual aspect to being African that um, a lot of, of Africans who were born and raised in the U.S., and who do not have direct African parents don't seem to be very much aware of, you know, because then, you know, there are taboos, there are things I can't do as, as an African, as an Igbo man. There are things I can't do. So these are things that defile the land. Our people love and respect the land. We love and respect nature. And, you know, um, it, it's a taboo for an Igbo man to kill another to kill another Igbo man. You can't kill your own brother. You know, it's 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 like it's one of the worst things you can do. Mm. And then it, it brings a curse on the land and on the people. You know. So I know I know I'm going spiritual and all that, but there are some of these beliefs. You know, for example, now this is something else. It may seem funny, but it's true. Now, I'm an able man. I can't have canal knowledge of a married woman, of someone else's wife. It's a taboo. It's something I just can't do. Right. You know? But then, uh, we, we, we know that in, you know, maybe in America, in across Europe, the cultures are different. Yeah. So, you know, there would seem, it would seem like an okay thing to do. But back here, you, you can't do that. And so, if we're creating new communities that want to reconnect with Africa, it's also important to learn about these other practices. You have to learn about the cultures and the traditions. Because these are the things that will set us apart. These are the things that set us apart from the rest of the world. These are the things we can sell that can show us to be who we truly are, you know, unique, uh, different. Right. I don't, I, I don't want to use the word superior, but you know, yeah. But Thank these you. are values we have to uphold if we have to stand out, you know, like our music or like our movies or stories and all that. Exactly. I wish we had more time because I have so many more questions for you, but we are running out of time. Uh, mm. Like, there's something that you just said that I really want to ask you about, but. Yeah, go time. ahead. I, we should be able to say maybe like one more question. I don't know. Okay, yeah, one more question, one more question. Um, so yeah, you said, but I noticed that we are a spiritual people, right? And I'm always shocked when I'm going to, cause I've been traveling a lot, right? And going to different like African communities and I see that there is a, um, a lot of pollution that's going on in our communities. And I asked someone about it and they were like, yeah, it's because, you know, African people, you have some section of African people that, have given up right they've given up hope and that transfers over into how they treat their environment so for example when i was in ghana in accra 
Um, the city is so polluted, and, and that city used to be known as the Gold Coast, filled with gold up and down, and it, and it still is filled with gold, technically, um, if you dig hard, hard enough, right? But, yeah, the pollution is, 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 is terrible, and it's not only just in Ghana. Um, it's even in African communities back in the States, so yeah the, my my question is what what about those traditions that don't even carry over even in african communities well yeah it's it's unfortunate you know because we are getting westernized or we got westernized faster than we we can adjust or reverse but if you were to visit the rural communities chances are you would find the exact opposite of the pollution situation in the mm. cities. And I know that because we have the, we have that pollution problem even here in the, here in Nigeria, in my city, right. you know, and, and it's, it's out there in the streets, it's out there everywhere. But then if you were to go to the communities, in a lot of communities, you wouldn't find refuse dumps. In my community, in my home community, you won't find refuse dumps. I've never found one. And now I'm just thinking about it and I'm wondering like, what, what what do our people do with refuse? Because you see, in 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 rural African communities, they have internal mechanisms for cleaning up and ensuring that the society, that the community, that the village is stay clean and sanitary at every point in time. You know, they had uh, age grades, or they have age grades. They have different groups. You know, women group, men groups. Uh, uh, youth groups, they have age grades that were responsible for creating new roads, mm. uh, clearing out old roads, yeah. ensuring that uh, there were no erosions. So if there were signs of erosion, they would have to fix it. Right. You know, people were responsible for everything. And then they ensured that people did not uh, leave their homes dirty. And when there were elderly people who are unable to sweep their compounds, you have members of uh, younger age grades take turns to go clean up their compound and ensure that the elderly people are fed and taken wow. care of. So where these traditional systems are strong, you see that that pollution problem really does not become a problem. You know, it's just, it's, it just isn't there. But then uh, with urbanization happening and uh, with large populations in northern centers, uh, a lot of people are heading to the cities. People want to make a living. Yeah. And you have housing shortages. You have, as a matter of fact, everything is shut. And poor government regulation, it's very difficult to keep the environment sanitary. And, and that I think it's a real big problem for us. Our ancestors would look down at us and, and wonder how we went mad so fast. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they, 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 would, they wouldn't have condoned stuff like this. Yeah. Well, we're in the process of getting better and fixing it up. It's it's up to all of us to save Africa, to save Africans, and empower all of us. But we're yeah. running out of time. I wish we had more time. I'm definitely going to have to have you back on my podcast, and I'm looking forward to our conversation <laughs> for our our conversation with your podcast as well. So thank you so much for sharing and wow i feel like i could listen to you talk all day i, I know you said that to me earlier but um it's, that's, it's really very that, that's flattering thank you very much
Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank yeah, you for listening, everyone. So yeah, I'll do, I'll do this anytime. I'll do this. Yeah. Just, I don't know. We should do this again soon. Absolutely.